Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, you find your text for the sermon there on page 10. It's listed as 2 Samuel chapter 15. We have the entirety of chapter 15 printed for you, but I want to focus this morning upon just the first 12 verses. I'd ask you then this afternoon or this evening if you would continue and read the entirety of chapter 15 as well as chapter 16. We'll tackle the first half of chapter 15 today, Lord willing. We'll tackle the second half and chapter 16 next week. Give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, powerful, inerrant, infallible, inspired word. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims, they're, they're good and, and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur of Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city of Gilah. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. One of the commentators, as he was unpacking this passage, 
told of a story from World War II. During 1942 and afterwards, the Red Cross began to send packages to German concentration camps. Now the Red Cross sent these packages for prisoners of war that were being held in the various German concentration camps. And when at one point the International Red Cross asked for an accounting of those packages, did the packages get to the prisoners? It turned out that at just one of those concentration camps alone, some seven carloads, train carloads of packages were unaccounted for. It's estimated about 22,000 for, for that camp alone had gone missing. What had happened to those packages? Did, did the train wreck? Did they fall off into the ditch? No. German officers had pilfered them. Some of the POWs who survived to the end of the war, survived to see the fall of the Third Reich, were highly amused in those last days. I mean, it was known that Germany had fallen. And in those last days, while they're in those prisoner of war camps, while they're awaiting liberation, they're watching the SS officers. And guess what the SS officers were doing? They were getting out as many uh, Red Cross cartons as they could, and they were destroying them. They were destroying as much evidence as they could before the Allied troops came. What had they done? They had seized things that did not belong to them. They had taken packages that belonged to the prisoners of war and they took them for themselves. They seized what didn't belong to them. And that's exactly what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Absalom is about the task of seizing what did not belong to him. He was taking, he was working towards taking the crown and taking the throne. What, what he had done in premeditation, what he had planned over two years to do to Amnon, now he's going to take four years and unfold a similar sort of thing to go against now, not his half-brother, but his father, David. And then this unfolding of this sin, in this unfolding of this rebellion, in this unfolding of a civil war, I want you to see two things. Two things stand out to me. The first that I see here in this text is something of the psychology of sin. The psychology of sin, at least as it's being played out in the life of Absalom. The psychology of sin. The second thing I'd like for you to notice is the paradox of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Sin and sovereignty. Let's look at the verse. The psychology of sin. Now when I come to these texts, I come as one who's been reared in the church. I come to these passages as one who's been in church since I was born. I've heard these stories. I know about Absalom. And when I come to these stories, I'm thinking, yeah, that Absalom, he's despicable. He's terrible. He's devious. He's wicked. And guess what? He was. Okay? But I come to him 
And I come with this mentality. He's far worse than Lee. He's far different than us, us folk. He's a notorious sinner. I'm just a normal sinner. He's notorious, I'm normal. And when I come to a text like that, like that way, in that way, I miss. I miss so much. I miss so much that might shine a light upon my own sin. And brothers and sisters, I, I quoted this morning, I'll quote again uh, an old Puritan, uh, Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson said, until sin be bitter, until your sin is bitter to you, until you see more and more of your sin and you see the bitterness of it and the, the awfulness of it, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And brothers and sisters, I want Christ to be sweet to you. So for Christ to be sweet or sweeter to you, I want you to delve into the darkness of your own sin. And I want you to imagine, just, just for a moment, just for a few moments this morning, maybe you're more like Absalom than you'll ever admit. What do we see about the psychology of sin? Here's the first thing I want you to see. In Absalom's sin, he focuses on grievances instead of blessings. He focuses on grievances, on things that people have done, rather than upon the blessings he's received. Look at the very first verse. Just the two, first two words. After this. After what? What's the this? What's the this referring to? Go back to the chapter before. It refers to when King David allowed Absalom to come back into Jerusalem and he gave him a kiss. The this was him being received out of exile back into Jerusalem and in essence being pardoned for his sins. And so you would think, okay, he comes back in, he's received the kiss of his father, now he's going to dedicate himself. Now, after this, he's going to dedicate himself to his father. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that you've granted to me. Let me serve you. Let me help you. I know the burden of ruling is, is heavy. Let me be of assistance to you. Is that what he does? No. No. Instead of meditating upon the blessing that he received, what does he do? He nurses his grievances. Instead of recognizing the beautiful position that he was now back in, he thinks upon what? The two years in which his father had shunned him. It's pretty clear he's nursing grievances. Well, what about me? What about you? Be brutally honest with yourself. Which do you tend to do more? Nurse your wounds or count your blessings? Remember things that people have done against you that hurt? Or count all the wonderful blessings that you've received from the hand of the Lord? Is Absalom notorious or normal? Are you 
normal or notorious? The psychology of sin. Notice the second thing about that psychology. In his sin, Absalom finds his reasons. He finds his rationale. He searches for justification. The justification for the actions he's choosing. Notice verse 3. Absalom would say to him, the, the person who's come to the gate. Now coming to the gate was like going to the courthouse. If you had a problem, if you had a conflict, you needed it resolved, where'd you go? You went to the courthouse, you went to the gate. And there the king would typically have his elders. And the elders would consider the case. And if they couldn't figure out the case, then they would refer it on to the king. Absalom would say to the man who's come that way, See, your claims, your claims, they're good, they're right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. What's he doing? You see what's going on, don't you? Whether it was actually the case or not, Absalom was acting as if his father was failing to provide the justice that was needed for the people. Absalom is telling everyone, my dad, who's king, who should be providing justice, he's AWOL. He's missing from action. He's failing to do his job. And whether that was the case or not, it's likely in Absalom's mind he was convinced of it. After all, Dad had denied sister justice. Dad had not prosecuted half-brother. And Dad had shunned him for two years. So in his mind, Dad was the sinner. And because Dad was such a bad sin, then he was, he was fully justified in doing what he was doing. He was marshalling justifications for his rebellion. Now, my brothers and sisters, our sins may be different. They are. I don't know too many of you who are about to lead in a rebellion against the United States. If you are, let me know. Okay? Our sins may be different, but how often do we search for justification for our sins? Oh, it's because of her. It's because of him. It's the woman you gave me. Beware of the subtlety and the self-righteousness of sin. We are very astute at judging the sins of others and doing so in a way to justify our own sins. And we learn it young, don't we? Parents, y'all can all shake your head. You know, you got the, your, your, your daughter, your son, they come to you and say, Mommy, Daddy, it's not my fault. He did it. He did it. She did it. She's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. Is Absalom 
notorious or normal? Are we normal or notorious? Third aspect of the psychology of sin. In his sin, Absalom masquerades as virtuous and he manipulates people. Verse 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I'd give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, and, and who is he? He's the prince. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, to bow down to him, oh prince, oh prince, prince. He said, no, 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 get up. Don't, no, don't, don't do that. Shake my hand, buddy. I'm just like you. Let's go get a beer. Let's go to McDonald's. We don't need to go to those fancy places. I'm just, I'm everyday common Joe. See what he's doing? He's masquerading. He's manipulating. Verse 11. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. He's setting 200 men up to look like they're behind him and supporting him. He's manipulating. And it continues. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilah. Now we'll talk more about Ahithophel next time. But again, what's he doing? Manipulating people. And in masquerading and in manipulating, Absalom was doing what? He was using people for his own ends. And that's just the opposite of what we read in Philippians chapter 2. You remember the words there? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now why does Paul write such a word to the church at Philippi? Because they, like us, are tempted to do what? Masquerade and manipulate. Is Absalom notorious or normal? Are you normal or notorious? One last thing I want you to see about the psychology of Absalom's sin, and we're, do, and we're spending more time in the psychology than the second point, but the one last thing I want you to see here is in his sin he is profane. Notice verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow. That's a religious thing. Religious words. Let me pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying... Now, I want you to notice what he says here. It should be, you know, you should have alarm bells going off automatically. Notice what he says. If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I'll offer worship to the Lord. What? You're not going to worship Him until He does X, Y, and Z? That sounds a little bit like us at times. But what I want you really to see is, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Something sacred. I'm going to worship God. Religious words, vows, religious action, worship. The word profane comes to us from the Latin. 
It comes to us from the Latin that means out of the temple. Those things that are ceremonially unclean that need not be in the temple, they need to be gotten rid of. They're outside. It's the opposite of sacred. Profanity is using religious language or religious actions in ways that either desecrate or trivialize their sacred meaning. It's using religious words or religious actions in ways that desecrate or trivialize their meaning. That's exactly what Absalom is doing here. He's supposedly worshiping God, a religious action, but what is he actually doing? He's launching a civil war, a coup d'etat, a rebellion. It's only worship in name. As many of you know, I teach 10th graders uh, literature and history. At the beginning of every school year, I go through a normal routine. I talk about how when you're studying literature, you have to study sin. But you can't, because you can't have a good story without a problem, without sin. And I say, as we are studying literature, we're going to be studying depictions of sin. And those depictions can be obscene, they can be, they can be vulgar, or they can be profane, or a combination. And so I have to warn students, you might read words in Canterbury Tales that are just a little racy. And then I go on and I ask the students, what sort of sinful words do you believe are worse? Those that are vulgar or those that are profane? And they're kind of scratching their heads at that point. And I say, well, vulgar is basically potty humor. Vulgar words are about bodily parts or bodily functions. Profanity is desecrating or trivializing what should be sacred. Then I go and give them an example. I say, um, which is worse, students? The word that begins with S and ends with a T? Or the phrase that goes by the initials OMG? Or the words that are so often on their lips like golly or gosh or gee or darn. Which is worse? And the students at this point, maybe you're doing the same thing, they hesitate. They always hesitate. They're afraid to say. Why? Because it's culturally acceptable in the Christian community to use soft Profanity. It's widespread. It's accepted. Where using the S word or using the F word are just not a part of what we do, at least right now. And, and, and then I go on and say, dear ones, um, the Bible says very, very little about vulgarity. The Bible will even use vulgarity from time to time in making points. But I say the Bible takes no prisoners when it comes to profanity. 
And occasionally at this point, there's, it's usually a girl, a sweet little girl. She said, well, but Mr. Shelnut, um, I don't really mean anything by OMG. I just use it when I'm surprised or something like that. And I don't mean anything. Oh, you don't mean anything about a cry to the Lord? I say, exactly. You're trivializing the sacred. Brothers and sisters, Absalom's profane action is worse than that sweet 10th grader who says, gee. But the sin is not of a different kind. It's of a different degree. And you can start with one and go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Do you see the deceptiveness? Do you see the subtlety of our sin? The cunningness of our sinful hearts? We focus on grievances rather than what? Blessings. We're always searching for justification in the action of others to justify our sin. And we wear masks all the time. And you better believe we manipulate. And we may even be profane. That's the first thing I want you to see here. I'll be much briefer with the second point. But remember, Watson, until your sins are bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The paradox now of sin and sovereignty. If you remember back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12, what did the prophet Nathan say to David? He said the following, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. What's happening in chapter 15? The Word of God is unfolding. The Word of God is coming true. The Word of the Lord is true. Rebellion is coming from within the house of David. The Word of the Lord is true, but it's also challenging, isn't it? If God willed that David's own house would rise up against David as a temporal judgment, punishment for his sin, then is Absalom responsible? Is he culpable? I mean, if God's planned it, is Absalom worthy of judgment? Is he culpable? Is he responsible? Let me put it simply. Yes. 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 
And brothers and sisters, while human responsibility and divine sovereignty may be hard for our finite minds to hold together, let us dare not jettison either truth. Don't say, well, Absalom, he's guilty. He's guilty of sin. So God must just not be in control of all this. Or don't say, well, God planned it. He willed it, so therefore, Absalom, he's not guilty. He's just doing the Lord's bidding. Don't go either direction. You know, we have to try to figure everything out. We have a hard time accepting mystery. Please have room for mystery. The Bible clearly and repeatedly holds out both of these truths to us. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Repeatedly. Let me just give you two huge examples. Remember at the end of the book of Genesis. Okay? Remember Joseph's brothers, they're all in a tizzy, they're concerned because, oh no, Joseph is a prince in Egypt. What's he going to do to them? Because they had sold him off into what? Slavery. You remember what Joseph said? As for you, you meant it as evil against me, but God meant it for good. You're responsible, but God meant it for good. He's sovereign over it all. That's Old Testament. And it's not just an Old Testament teaching. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the first great sermon of a Christian preacher. Peter on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. What does he say to all those gathered in Jerusalem? He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, you're culpable. You knew it. You knew he was from God. You knew he was the Messiah. And yet you suppressed it. You sinned. He goes on to say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You're guilty. You sinned. What you did was wicked. What you did was evil. But guess what? God uses that for His great and glorious purposes of sending a Savior and crucifying a Savior in the place of those who will look to Him in faith. The late J.I. Packer uh, wrote, uh, he's writing about um, the pretty common story about C.H. Spurgeon. A person comes up to C.H. Spurgeon and the person asks, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, could you reconcile for me divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Could you reconcile those two? Spurgeon said, I wouldn't even try. I never reconcile friends. Friends don't need reconciliation. You think these are at odds because you have finite minds. 
These are two truths that work together in God's glorious plan. They are friends. They work together. Now what's the takeaway in all this? The psychology of sin and these, this paradox of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Here's the takeaway. Brothers and sisters, you will give in, you will succumb to the deviousness and to the psychology of your own sinful hearts. You will do that. You have done that. And you'll do it in various ways. And many of these ways will be just replicating Absalom. But when you do know this, there is forgiveness of that sin, for that sin. There is forgiveness when, when, when you nurse grudges and hold on to grievances instead of counting your blessings. There's forgiveness for such sin. There, there, there is forgiveness for, for the sins of, 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 of finding justification for your sin and the sins of others. There is forgiveness for the sin of being profane. There is forgiveness for all these sins, for masquerading and for manipulating other people. There is forgiveness, and that forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. And know that if you come to Him in His death on the cross in your place, there is forgiveness. But also know this, those sins for which you're responsible for, but in which you have forgiveness in Jesus Christ, He uses even those sins in the great tapestry of His great and glorious will, which will be ultimately for your good, and it will resound to His glory. Now, don't then use that as an excuse to go on sinning. Instead, use it as fuel, as motivation to look, to trust, and to love Jesus. Because you know what? There's salvation for notorious sinners. There's salvation for you. And it's found in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we don't like to go here. We don't like to see the darkness of our own hearts. And yet, until our sins are bitter, Jesus will not be sweet. Lord, enable us to see the sweetness of Jesus. And our, may our faith look to Him. For this we pray in His name. Amen.